Amen. Please be seated. We turn again together to Genesis chapter 4, in the middle of the chapter now. Back in chapter 3, it all fell apart for mankind. That's not an understatement, but despite that awful fall into sin for the first Adam, God promised a seed to come from the woman who would be the second Adam. Chapter 3 introduced the seed, and the ongoing chapters of the Old Testament tell about the the preserving and the bringing of the seed forth, the anointed one to come, the Messiah, the Christ, the second Adam. So here in chapter 4, we continue the account of humankind's growth, the generations, the account of Cain in particular, the one who killed his own brother. We see life under sin and now life under sin and death. Chapter 4 finishes with the generations of Cain, and then into chapter 5, we have the generations of Seth. Now, you would be right to guess that Cain's line, his family line, would not be God-seeking or God-fearing. But you'd be wrong if you thought that God's grace wasn't still amazingly abundant in the passage before us, despite the godless times, at least from the perspective of the inhabitants of this new city that develops. Please hear as I read God's holy word. This is Genesis. I'll start at verse 14 and then read down to verse 26. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we love your word for the riches of truth that it reveals. 
Lord, so many lies are told to us, especially in these days. So to have your sure and steady word, we are truly grateful. Lord, we ask on this day that you would give us a special assistance, special assistance from your Holy Spirit as we open your word. Help us to have focus and attention. Give us wisdom and insight. Please help us not only to know what is true, but also what to do. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 4. This is the first account of living in a world with sin and death that we have before us. Now, it only took to the first children of Adam and Eve to see the ultimate sin of murder committed when Cain killed Abel, as we studied last week. But God promised a second Adam, a second Adam to reverse what was done by the first. But how could a seed come from the woman into this place of death and misery that we see before us? How could a seed be preserved through all this pain and suffering that had been brought about because of sin? Well, when Moses describes God in Exodus 34, he describes him as compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. When the Apostle Paul refers to God, he speaks of the riches of God's grace in Ephesians. The Apostle John said that Jesus was full of grace and truth. The Apostle Peter refers to God as the God of all grace in his first epistle. Grace. This word used multiple times to describe God. In its most simple definition, grace is undeserved favor. What we have before us is God's undeserved favor seen everywhere, even amidst godlessness. But the greatest display of grace is seen through the salvation of his people in a very special way. In this passage, we have some hope for living in godless times. We have a positive perspective for Christians as we live in a predominantly in a growing, unbelieving world. We have before us in this account a reason to praise God in the midst of opposition that may come. God's undeserved favor, it can be seen everywhere, even in the midst of godlessness. But the great display, the wonderful display that we see this passage end on, this note of his special, his saving grace. This is the greatest of his grace. Now, grace in its most basic meaning, as I mentioned, it's an extension of kindness to those who have done nothing to deserve that kindness in return. Now, God's show of grace in the scriptures is more than that, however. It's kindness extended to people who not only don't deserve it, but really deserve to be punished, to be cast off. This is the kind of grace you see God showing over and over in the biblical text. The passage before us addresses a couple different kinds of God's grace, and I want, them to see, want you to see them vividly on display. First, you'll see this common grace that everybody experiences. Every living person on this globe, every living being on this globe experiences God's widespread common grace. But there's another kind of grace, a more profound kind of grace by far. It's experienced only by some. It's a special kind of grace, a saving grace. The first, a common grace everyone experiences. The second is specialized. It's saving grace. Common grace and special grace, both on display in Genesis 4 and both are demonstrable today. First, let's look 
at this great show of God's common grace, starting in verse 15. Remember, we just saw in chapter 4, the first half, Cain killing his brother and being punished rightfully, rightfully punished. You might even see graciously punished because it could have been worse. Now we witness Cain hearing this punishment that's coming his way, and he laments over the heaviness of the punishment, the severity of the punishment. He complains that with this punishment of wandering about, people are going to kill him if they get a chance. Then in verse 15, you see this extension of kindness even to Cain by God. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. If someone kills you, they will receive recompense seven times over. This will make him stand out. It says, and the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him. We don't know what the mark is, but we know people understood this was Cain. And the promise of God's recompense came with anything you might do to him. Now, Cain's ultimate, his ultimate end, should he persist in his unbelief and rebellion, it would be the reception of spiritual judgment and death. But in his immediate life, in centuries go by in his life, he experiences a temporal, gracious, protection from God. The vengeance that would be unleashed on anyone who would attack Cain sevenfold it's described as. Vigilante justice would not be allowed against Cain. In fact, he lived 700 years. Verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Another way of saying he stepped out of what he thought was God's eye, his watchful eye. Now, he can't escape his gaze, but this was a step out of fellowship. Uh, It was a break from God. There's not a repentance or turning back to God, but a break from him. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, which means wandering, east of Eden. We don't know how long it took for this settling. We're sure he wandered for some time and then landed in the place called Nod, which is wandering. The end of his wandering, at least he thought, no doubt. Cain wasn't beginning his life away from Eden as a repentant believer. Cain is still Cain. But nevertheless, he experiences this grace that God shows. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Remember, by this time, hundreds of years had elapsed. There are many people now on the earth, thousands of people, no doubt, at this time. And he takes a wife for himself. She conceived and bore Enoch. There are multiple Enochs. This is the first of them. When he, Cain, built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. You could sense the blessings that Cain receives. He's married, enjoys the benefits that come from marriage. He had children, one named here Enoch. In fact, a whole city came from the progeny of Cain. Imagine the first city now being founded by a murderer. That could have gone bad fast. But this is a show of God's common grace, his restraining grace that doesn't allow all the sinfulness of Cain to be visited upon all his children and into the city, at least not in its fullest sense. God has some of his common grace there for sure. Imagine how quickly things could have gone with Cain and his demeanor being the founder of this city. Could go well long term, maybe, but things immediately sure could have looked difficult. God's common grace. Meredith Klein says, By virtue of God's common grace, restraint was applied to curb the apostate spirit that was thus present in the city of man from the outset. 
lest its demonic potential escalate too rapidly. Even the fact that our murderer could found a city in the city see blessing shows the protective, the restraining hand of God upon mankind, even though they're not acknowledging it in the least. Common grace, that's what we're seeing here. This includes even the delay of wrath, the mitigation of our sin natures, as one commentator said. And furthermore, natural events that lead to prosperity and all gifts that humans use and enjoy naturally. God's common grace shown even to the godless here. God designed marriage and family, and even Cain was able to enjoy some of this. Cain went on to have a house after his name. What undeserved blessings. Look at verse 18. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael. At the end of those names, El, that's the name for God. Is there some draw, call back to God himself? Well, we see this line doesn't go far. And Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech's an important figure, we'll see. But notice for Cain's part, Abel never got to be married and have children. Abel didn't get to see grandchildren and a whole heritage unfold, a city be founded. But Cain experienced this provision of God's very much undeserved favor. So lest anyone, though, think that Cain turned it around spiritually and merited any of this and became a different person in these days, as his family grew, the family showed their grandfather's character, Lamech in particular. And Moses is careful to point out Lamech several generations now down the line. Verse 19, and we see Lamech. Lamech took two wives. That's a massive statement with lots of impact. The, names, the name of one was Ada and the other Zillah, Ada bore Jabal. One of the great evils ever to enter humanity is the perversion of marriage. Wherever God's model for marriage is dishonored, there comes after it disorder and disunity. Here we see Lamech completely despising God's provision and model and takes for himself two wives. This always causes unrest, insecurity, division, and other sins of the heart and hands. Lamech takes for himself two wives in defiance of God's order. He sees himself as the sovereign one. This begins a cultural pattern that's copied by many civilizations after, and it yields untold amounts of heartache and sin. We see it even in the biblical history of the patriarchs and so forth always causes pain and difficulty and misery. Yet, God is gracious still. This is what we mean by common grace. Look at Lamech's children by those wives, Ada and Zillah. Verse 20, Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. This is the very early history of mankind, obviously. It seems as though Moses here is giving credit to Jabal for the use of tents, or the proliferation of tents, the expansion of their use. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And you can see why these go so well together. Animals and tents, they go together. The animals were used entirely for food and for shelter. Tail to snout, as it said. Nothing was wasted. We have industry here exhibited by Jabal. The use of tents, this helps mankind's experience for sure in their existence. A shelter and mobility come with these tents. Jabal advances and promotes this in, these improvements to humanity that everybody benefits from. 
He also advances in keeping living animals to help mankind. Animal husbandry, as it's called. And there's no indication, by the way, that Jabel was doing any of this for the glory of God. In fact, all signs point to opposition to God, like his father, through Cain and Lamech. Yet, there is blessing for mankind with these tents and livestock operations. Even those who do not acknowledge God are made in God's image with great capacity. And we see some of this capacity unleashed here, and we see it throughout the ages. God's common grace indeed. Jabal's brother is also mentioned, noted for something special. Look at verse 21. This is the other son from Lamech's first wife. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played a lyre in the pipe. Musical instruments come through Jubal, according to what we read here. What a gift is God's music, this great gift from the Lord. It's everywhere celebrated as for God's glory, ultimately. It appears to have been invented here, or at least made popular now, by Jubal, the son of Lamech. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the harp. Again, God's common grace shown. People who seem to have no devotion to God whatsoever, given great capacity to invent instruments that benefit us all. You know, this is true across the centuries. When a person hears Appalachian Spring by Copeland or Messiah by Handel, whether they're a believer or not, they can recognize something amazing, something almost beyond human, coming yet through human beings. They know they're hearing something, in some sense, otherworldly. God's common grace given through people. You know, John Murray, the great theologian of Westminster Seminary, uh, captured the essence of common grace very vividly with some questions. Murray wrote, How is it that men who still lie under the wrath and curse of God and are heirs of hell enjoy so many good gifts at the hands of God? How is it that men who are not savingly renewed by the Spirit of God nevertheless exhibit so many qualities, gifts, and accomplishments that promote the preservation, temporal happiness, cultural progress, social and economic improvement of themselves and others? How is it that races and peoples that have been apparently untouched by the redemptive and regenerative influences of the gospel contribute so much to what we call human civilization? To put the question most comprehensively, how is it that this sin-cursed world enjoys so much favor and kindness at the hand of its holy and ever-blessed creator? The answer is simple. It's God's common grace. What about Lamech's children from his second wife? Verse 22. Zillah also bore Tubal king. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, the sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. I don't know what your three kids are doing or five kids are, but they ain't doing what these kids did. I mean, look what everything that came through Lamech. All the different things that were added to humanity because of Lamech. What did your kid do? He invented everything that's metal. He's a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Uh, forger, forging has to do with being a, a worker or an inventor, a crafter of metal. Hammerer is another word that could be used here. A, a sharpener of metal. This has to do with a metal worker. 
He's a forger of all instruments, which, could, which would include all sorts of things. Imagine how much they could start making and doing now that this, is, this ability was had. Appliances, farming implements, tools for livestock, cooking utensils, structural pieces, and of course weaponry as well. We would expect nothing less from the line of Cain, but also look at the grace God poured out through even people that did not acknowledge him. When we do an inventory quickly through the advancements that came through Cain, we have tents or shelter, we have livestock operations, musical in- instruments, uh, metalwork like tools, utensils, weaponry. All of this is a show of God's common grace. Kent Hughes said, well, godless Cainite civilization birthed massive cultural advances that have enriched all of life. Now, lest anyone think that these inventions were submitted through people who feared God. We have more about the person Lamech in verse 23 with this poem that Jewish lore later called the Song of the Sword. Lamech bragging to his two wives. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. He's speaking of of the kind of power he thinks he has. Uh, that he is the Lord of himself. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. He's taking the the position of of God here. I will lay out vengeance 70 times seven. Now, Lamech is not only polygamous, he was a murderer. And the poem accents this, and it shows it as a bit of a celebration. Hughes, who I mentioned earlier, says that Lamech wore violence as a badge of honor, He was a remorseless, carnivorous man. God promised to deliver sevenfold, sevenfold vengeance on anyone who harmed Cain. He's saying that I am more fierce than Cain and I will take it upon myself. That's what he is implying here, to deal out recompense to anyone who would mess with me. Godless is an apt description for Lamech. He looked at his great-grandfather Cain and thought of himself as more fierce and more dangerous by far. Derek Kidner, this account gives us a first taste of a self-sufficient society, which is the essence of what the New Testament later calls the world. Yet, God gives Cain and his progeny all sorts of intellect, ingenuity, creativity, ability, and materials. He gives them animals, discoveries, inventions, Shelter, the ability to raise and keep these animals, musical instrumentation, all these things together, all benefits to mankind, all examples of common grace. You know, Cain was cast from God's presence. He wandered clearly for a time. Could not himself farm again. But yet from Cain comes a great civilization. From Cain, knowledge is brought forth that would continue to multiply and be remembered and used again. Calvin, looking at this epoch in time, says it pretty succinctly. He says, Let us then know that the sons of Cain, though deprived of the spirit of regeneration, were yet endued with gifts of no despicable kind. Just as the experience of all ages teaches us how widely the rays of divine light have shone on unbelieving nations for the benefit of the present life. And we see at the present time that the excellent gifts of the Spirit are diffused through the whole of the human race. He's talking about common grace here. 
the invention of so many things in our times, just think in our own days, the proliferation of all kinds of energy that we can use, the incredible growth of farming and ranching for food, the wheel, the nail, the compass, the printing press, combustion engines, the light bulb, the discovery of DNA, antibiotics, medical imaging, artificial intelligence, computers, internet. Do you know that the Webb telescope is a million and a half miles further into space than anything we've had before, seven times the light it can take in? Who knows what it will show to the ends, or at least as far as we can see, the ends of the solar system and beyond. Who knows? We have superpower computers in our hands. We have ships. We have trains. We have cars. We have heavy equipment. All these great inventors that God has granted over the years, Da Vinci, Galileo, Gutenberg, Newton, Eli Whitney, Pasteur, Nobel, Edison, Graham Bell, the Wright brothers, Washington Carver, Einstein, Tesla, Ford, Morse, Jobs, Musk. He keeps bringing people along who have minds that aren't turned towards him, but they're turned on by him. And they could see things that not everybody else can see. This is God's common grace. And though they may not acknowledge it, we can acknowledge what the psalmist said in Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. It sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What's the purpose for all of this? Why this great display, this great show? There's several reasons. But the one that I would like to accent and challenge us to think concerning is what Paul said in Romans. Romans, when he's trying to compel people to believe on Christ, and he describes all these things around us, look around, see all the goodness of God. And in Romans 2 verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you presume upon all these kind things? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Donald Gray Barnhouse, I wish I could have seen him preach live. He died in 1960, so it would have been tough. He was born in 71. But some 70 years ago, he put to his congregation an interesting uh, bit of an exhortation about common grace and all that God had revealed and had done for them as a way of compelling them to see they needed Christ. Barnhouse said, you are not a believer in Christ, and yet you are still out of hell. That is the grace of God. You're not in hell, but you are here on earth and in good health and prosperity. This is the common grace of God. The vast majority of those who read these words are living in comfortable homes and apartments. This is the common grace of God, Barnhouse said. You are not fleeing as refugees along the highways of a country desolated by war. That is common grace. You come home from your job and your child runs to meet you in good health and spirits. This is common grace. You are able to put your hand in your pocket and give the child a quarter or a half dollar for allowance. It's common grace that you have such abundance, Barnhouse said. You go into your house and you sit down to a good meal. That's common grace. On the day that you read these words, there are more than a billion and a half members of the human race who will go to sleep without enough to satisfy their hunger. The fact that you have enough is common grace. You do not deserve it. And if you think that you deserve anything at all from God beyond the wrath with which you have so richly earned, 
You merely show your ignorance of spiritual principles. Again, the apostle Paul wrote, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So common grace, common grace is a type of grace for sure. We see it, but it's very temporary, very temporary. Common grace is experienced for a short time. And there are glimpses at times of what it's like when God takes his hand off of that restraining common grace a bit. When sin gets so bad and so wicked, so widespread. Think of Canaan in the Old Testament. He takes his hands. He doesn't unleash all of it, and that'd be hell. But he unleashes some of it, and that society feels a bit of God's common grace slipping, and they suffer under it. Here in Genesis 4, we see a civilization trying to further itself from God, to be independent from God. So there is a much greater grace, a much greater grace that the Scripture unfolds for us, reveals for us. It's not a common grace at all. It's a special grace, a very special grace. In fact, it's a saving grace. And that's what is now alluded to in verse 25 and verse 26. It harkens back and looks forward to God's sovereign, saving, special grace. That's the greatest of the graces that are revealed about God. Calvin said, while we admire the riches of his favor, which he has bestowed on them, common grace, let us still value far more highly that grace of regeneration with which he peculiarly sanctifies his elect unto himself. In Genesis 3, we were introduced to God's gracious plan to rectify the first Adam. They would still have to live in sin while that plan worked itself out. Well, God worked it out. The promise of a seed to come from the woman was the promise of the Messiah. The promise of one to come from the woman to crush the head of the serpent was the second Adam. Then Eve gives birth to Cain, you remember. And her response is, that's the seed. Behold, I've begotten a man. But our ideas are often not matching God's. But God's promises are nevertheless true. And his, promises, his promise to bestow saving grace was not dependent on mankind's action. We come to verse 25. Verse 25 says, And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, and you could see the more humbled, subdued tone, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. Both the misery with this mother, saw one child kill another, to this elation that God had appointed another offspring, literally another seed. Seth, it means granted. God granted or appointed, literally appointed. God has appointed for me another offspring. This is God's special grace. This is his saving grace being referred to here. Far more important and longer lasting than common grace. We know that Seth was part of God's unfolding plan to bring forth the promised seed, the promised Messiah, the second Adam. Verse 25, once again, God has appointed for me another seed, another offspring. This is God's special grace referring now to what will, will still come. When we come to the New Testament and we read Luke, who's very careful to give a full genealogy, we read these words in Luke 3. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then he starts to go through the long 
litany. I won't read all of it, but here's some of the names. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, all Jesus' line. The son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam called the son of God. Jesus, the second Adam, the son of God. The seed of the woman would come through Seth. And that's who we're introduced to in verse 25 and 26 in chapter 5, dwells on the generations of Seth. But I want you to notice something more particular here. To Seth also, verse 26, a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. A mini revival of sorts breaks out with the birth of Seth and the reaction of, of Eve. This is not common grace. This is specialized, specific saving grace referring to what God had delivered in Seth, what he would deliver ultimately through Seth. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. For people to call upon the name of the Lord, this is a prompting from God. This is a special grace. And interestingly, this is the first time we see in this portion of Scripture a particular name used for, for God here in the Lord. Here we have Yahweh, the covenant name. Moses uses Yahweh here, no doubt, to express that this profession of faith they make, calling upon the name of the Lord, is evidence of their being the covenant people, the people of God's grace. Moses, looking back, seeing this brief period after Seth's birth, as a time of revival unto Jehovah, unto Yahweh, and the covenant of grace. How do we know this is more than common grace? It's tied to the fulfillment of the redemptive promise to come. It's part of God's commitment to show grace by sending the second Adam. This is saving grace on display. This is a grace that is of eternal significance, a grace that will last forever and be one of the key factors for why we will worship him even though we've been there 10,000 years. Such godliness is not a given going forward. Just notice this is unique to this time period. It says in verse 26, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's interesting that Cain's progeny may have pioneered industry and the arts and other things that definitely benefited mankind in a temporal way. And that's important. But it seems here that Seth, with Seth, there's a, a reintroduction or a fresh introduction of the worship of God who's given it all. While the world as the whole is careening in a downward direction, nevertheless, God maintains his remnant of God-fearing people in this small lot of folks, preserving the seed for the Messiah. I want you to consider for just one moment this phrase, they called upon the name of the Lord. The reason why we know this is tied to special grace and not common grace, not just an uh, off-the-cuff comment, is it repeats itself throughout the Old Testament with special reference to people laying hold of the true and living God by faith. Abraham, when he's called by God in Genesis 12, from there he moved to the hill country in the east of Bethel, he went on west to Ai, to the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, it says about Abraham. Later in Genesis 13, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Isaac, his son, 
He built an altar in Genesis 26 and called upon the name of the Lord. Elijah says to Israel in 1 Kings of many places, he says to the pagans, you shall call on the name of your God and I will call upon the name of my God. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. David says, I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Here, in Genesis 4.26, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. What does this mean? This is just another way of describing their desperation and their need for God. It's a cry for help. They called upon the name of the Lord. They could see their desperation and their need for God, and they called upon the name of the Lord. They didn't look inwardly to find the answer. They didn't look around to other mankind to find the answer. They called upon the name of the Lord. They saw the bankruptcy of mankind despite all of its blessings, and they called upon the name of the Lord. It's a statement of dependence. It's a statement of recognition that God is the Lord. It's a statement of faith. It's a profession of faith in God. People began to call upon the name of the Lord. What should we do in desperate times? What should the godly do to respond to wicked days? Call upon the name of the Lord. And make no mistake, beloved, we are living in desperately wicked days in a wicked place. We are. And it's getting worse. What should you do? Call upon the name of the Lord. That's what we're to do. We're the people of God who point everyone else to where they should call because it's all going to fall apart for people. It will not go well for this land. It will go the way that you've seen it go in Canaan when God lifts his hand of restraining grace and we see the full onslaught of what's coming for us. And what do the people of God do? They call upon the name of the Lord. That's exactly what we do. It's a description that we see throughout the Bible, by the way, when Jude is talking to a wicked generation, because these generations rise and fall. They always fall. Until he comes again, they always rise and then they fall. And Jude is speaking very specifically to a similar day and age. Listen to what the writer Jude says. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, in other words, their made-up knowledge, their systems, their modern self, these people, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. They do all sorts of stuff with their bodies they shouldn't do. Reject authority. We're not going to be told by anybody. Sound familiar? This is Jude's day. And blaspheme the glorious ones, the spiritual ones, spirituality in its true sense. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. In godless times, God's grace is apparent still. God's common grace is extended throughout the ages. But eventually, he'll withdraw his hand of grace and replace it with a hand of judgment. But for the redeemed, no matter the times, we have a right response. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. I'll close with something that Kent Hughes said so wisely to summarize what we have read. Our text provides us a paradigm, he says, as outlined to understand civilization and culture today and its ostensible rise with the increase in abundance, music, arts, and technology. It rises impressively, but in its rise there is a demise because of sin. The only hope is to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the only hope for culture. This is the only hope for your soul. This is the only hope for the church, to call upon the name of the Lord who is Jesus Christ? Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer.
O Lord, we call upon you through Christ. We call upon you for your help in this wicked and wandering age. Please impress upon your people once again the power of your gospel and give us great boldness to proclaim Christ in this godless age. Lord, if you would be so gracious by the power of your Holy Spirit, please cause a sweeping revival among your people so that we would call upon your name and draw many, many of the lost to yourself. It is as the Apostle Paul wrote, and so we pray, let no one presume upon your riches, O Lord, Let no one presume upon your forbearance and your patience. Because this kindness of yours, O Lord, it is meant to lead to repentance. Lord, please grant widespread repentance in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together respond by turning in our hymnals to 